Okay, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 19, verse 45 through Luke 20, verse 8. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy Him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on His words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the Gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to Him, Tell us, by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe Him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Holy Father, I pray for the grace of Your Holy Spirit helping me expose, exposit this text accurately. Oh, what You want to communicate to Your church and to those who are outside of Your church to bring them in, cause it to come alive what is there on the page for the next 50 minutes. And by Your Spirit, cause our hearts to absorb it and to welcome it and to be changed and reproved and encouraged and filled with joy in Jesus Christ because of it. To the glory of His name and our sanctification and salvation. Amen. <clears throat> Authority is the huge issue that confronts every one of us all the time. And this text illustrates that powerfully. If Jesus here is acting by God's authority, then we better submit to Him and what He has to offer and what He has to say about how we live our lives about how we think, what we believe, how we repent, how we do marriage, how we flee sexual sin, how we handle our money, how we do church. God's authority in Jesus Christ, in 
the Scripture confronts our sinful lives. And that's grace. And as we allow His authority of the Word of God to nail us, if we are genuine believers, then we are called daily to submit to it. I want to introduce this text this morning in a very different way than I normally do. For about eight minutes, I want us to see it through the eyes of these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. Give them the benefit of the doubt. They were not waking up in the morning, kissing their wives and children goodbye, thinking, how may I do evil today? Very few human beings ever think that way. They would, how do I lead the people? We have a problem brewing here in our culture and in our religion. So give them that benefit of the doubt for a minute. And let's, let's take a CNN reporter and put her in a time machine to go back to Jerusalem, Passover week. A.D. 33, and enter the council room of the Sanhedrin and these leaders, and with the camera and with a microphone, she says, what's the situation going on here in Jerusalem that we hear all about? And the council's spokesperson stands up and says, well, first, on, on Sunday we heard of a huge commotion going on outside the gates of Jerusalem, so we sent a delegation out there to check on it. And what we found was that this popular teacher, whom the ignorant lay people refer to as rabbi, was allowing a huge crowd to go crazy. They were laying their garments on the road before him as if it was a red carpet for royalty as this guy rode in on a, on a donkey. And they were shouting messianic slogans from the Bible like, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And this was verging on blasphemy. So we told him to stop these people from praising Him this way. And He looked at us and He said loudly for all the crowd to hear, if these people don't continue to praise Me as the King of Israel, then rocks will praise Me. So obviously we concluded this guy is a dangerous nutcase. He has delusions of grandeur. Besides that, he appears to be emotionally unstable because right in the midst of that joyous parade they were having, all of a sudden he stopped and started crying, babbling something about the destruction of Jerusalem. He probably has it in his mind. He's like, Jeremiah, come back as a prophet. But we were really hoping that this would pass over, but it hasn't calmed down. The people throughout Jerusalem are still talking constantly about whether this is the promised Messiah who's going to establish the throne of David. 
you know, those people, they don't watch CNN, so they're kind of stupid. See, they don't understand that the Messiah is not going to come from Nazareth like this carpenter. He comes from Bethlehem. But see, then what happened next made everything that much worse. He entered the temple grounds and he went berserk. Yelling and turning over the tables of the merchants there who had all the right in the world to be doing their selling and bargaining. They were licensed by the high priest. They had their papers. But this guy in anger was getting physical. And he chased these vendors out of the temple courts. We told you this guy's emotionally unstable. He cannot even control his own temper. And now he's set himself up in the temple courts as a teacher. And the people every day can't wait to wake up and get there so that they're there when he, he arrives to hear him teach. If this doesn't stop, this is what we have been talking about as a council. This guy's going to destroy our Jewish culture and our Jewish religion. So what do you guys plan to do about this? Well, we've been working on that. One thing we know, we need to be very cautious because we've got to be careful not to turn the people as a whole against us. That, that would make things go from bad to worse. But we do need to leave these people out of this mess because we've we got to let them understand this Jesus guy is not operating under legitimate authority. And so what we've already done it, while he was teaching, we confronted the issue of authority to try to discredit him in the eyes of the people. But this guy's a lot brighter than we thought he was. He turned our question about his authority back on us, essentially saying the answer to our question depended on whether we answered his question. And he cleverly raised the real touchy issue of John, the baptizer, saying to us, was he a prophet from God or not? And that put us in a terrible political position with the people. See, if we answered that John was from God, then we knew Jesus would know us publicly saying, then why did you not submit to his baptism? Why did you not believe him? But if we say, yes, he is, not from God, well, then the crowd will probably turn on us. Because almost in unison, they all believed John was a true prophet of God. And so, we played it safe. We pleaded the fifth. No comment. We don't know. So, you guys got any other strategies? Well, we've been talking about a couple others that 
we, we may do like raising this touchy issue of paying taxes to Caesar and the very divided issue in our community of the resurrection of the dead. This is CNN reporting. The problem that these Jewish leaders faced was that Jesus in his authority was a threat to their authority. And today, right now, in our nation, there is a growing cultural battle, and it's really over authority. On the one hand, there is this radical secularism slash relativism permeating the culture and in ways some of us never would have thought ten years ago being made laws and infiltrating courts. And the motto of this side of the cultural battle is essentially make no judgments on anyone's belief systems or choices of how they live and do their lives except for biblical Christians. When it comes to them, judge them. Enact laws against them and marginalize them as hate mongers. On the other end of it, at bottom, really is the authority of the Creator through Jesus Christ. Jesus, in His authority, says there is a holy God, there is right, and there is wrong. There's righteousness, there is evil. His authority says there is a definition of what marriage is. His authority says there is such a thing as sinful sexual activity. Be it heterosexual or homosexual. His authority says there is a judgment to come. There is eternal life to be had freely. His authority says there is a glorious deliverance from what you deserve and it comes only through Jesus Christ. Authority is the issue in our nation and in our culture and in every one of our personal daily lives. You do not want to pass from this life and one day face this Jesus and have him say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So are you there in our text? Luke chapter 19. Starting with verse 45, Jesus enters the temple. Let's just stop for a moment and get, get a picture. When you hear that, don't think of well, like a church, like a really big church property or something. No. When the New Testament 
refers to entering the temple or teaching in the temple, it doesn't mean just the buildings where the Holy of Holies was housed and then the, the, the room before that, the holy place where priests daily ministered with the showbread and candlesticks. And, and then outside of that, where the altar was, where they burned offerings and there's places to do washing. And then you move out to the next court. It didn't mean just that really big place. It meant the entire temple complex with massive outdoor courtyards and many other buildings for all kinds of reasons. In other words, think like this. Four or a little bit larger than four city blocks wide and four city blocks deep. At this time, when Jesus enters the temple, on the hill up there, Jerusalem, if you cut Jerusalem into six pieces of pie, the temple took up one whole piece. It was one-sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem. It was 1.5 million square feet. And now Jesus enters. Where is he entering? Well, he's in this large, huge, like football fields, plural, large courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. Which doesn't mean only Gentiles go there. It means women and men and Jews. But Gentiles also go there. It means that they go there but can no, not go any further into closer towards the temple temple of, of itself. In that courtyard, there are all kinds of vendors. There are the vendors who have the license to pay for, have the right and the legal right to come in and to sell to these pilgrims coming, especially now at Passover, so they can have animals. They want to travel their way. And they would sell them what they need, like the particular animals and wine or oil or salt, pigeons. And there were also money changers who also purchased the right to do that. So when the people came with their Roman and Greek coins, they can exchange them for the half shekel, which is the temple tax that Jews are told to pay to the temple in Exodus chapter 30. Now, of course, within those exchanges, there are built-in charges so that the people could profit and that the high priest can continually take off what he gets to give these people the right. That's the context. Verse 45. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Just for a minute, I want, to, I want to flip over to Mark because he gives us a little more detail what happened. In Mark 11, start with verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem 
And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. These are violent acts. Picture someone right now standing up, yelling out some scripture, and flipping over the food tables in the back of the room right now. It makes you a little unnerved. But Jesus is not out of control. He is in perfect control and under true authority. Don't ever think that the meek, the humble, lowly, Savior King who rode in on a donkey we saw last week, don't ever think He is without intense passion for His Father's glory. Jesus did say, and He means it, and He is. If you're a believer, you've tasted the truth that I am gentle and humble in heart. He is. Jesus did say, the meek will inherit the earth. But meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness would include the strength not to defend yourself like Jesus will be doing in a few days in His trial and when He's going to be crucified. But meekness will defend others boldly. If, if you've seen really good movie this year, 42, on Jackie Robinson, the line where Branch Rickey says, No, I'm looking for someone who's strong enough not to fight back. That's why many of us view Jackie Robinson as a hero. That's meekness. That's strength. That's not weakness. Here, Jesus strikes back in prophetic defense of the holiness of God his Father. And he says in verse 46, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, robbers. Don't miss this about God Himself in His humanity, His human nature here. He is always radically biblical. When He was born of Mary, the Hebrew Scripture was written long before He took to Himself humanity. And here again, that's what He's doing in what He just said. He quoted two passages of Scripture. One from Isaiah, one from Jeremiah, and put them together. The first is from Isaiah 56, 7. But Jesus doesn't just take stuff out of context. He knows what Isaiah 56 is about. 
And in the context of Isaiah 56, it is about God opening up His arms of mercy and grace to non-Jews, to Gentiles. You just get a taste of it right here. Starting with verse 6 of Isaiah 56. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants. Foreigners, not Israel, not Judah, not the Jews. Everyone who holds fast my covenant, you want my covenant, you can come in, listen to him. These I will bring to my holy mountain. He's talking about the Temple Mount in Jerusalem here. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. The Temple. There, Gentile, burnt offerings. And their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles, knowing the Jews will not allow these Gentiles to get anywhere near the altar. They can come to this far into the temple grounds and they can pray there, but that's it. And he sees this financial gain and scheming at the cost of his word telling what his people are to do when they come up to the temple. They're be profiting from it. And he thinks it's a desecration to his Father's glory. And so he says, it's written... My Father's house, this temple, is to be a house where people can genuinely meet with God. It's a house of prayer. And then that leads him to his quote from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. But you turned it into a den of thieves or robbers. That line is from Jeremiah's speech that was one of his most cutting sermons 600 years earlier. Right before God's judgment came through the Babylonians to destroy Solomon's temple. In that sermon, the prophet Jeremiah warned that the destruction of this temple is coming so just for a moment, I want you to hear Jeremiah. Picture, 600 years earlier, Jeremiah standing, the temple doors with worshipers coming and going. And he says, Hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. 
He just said, people must not think. God's got a temple. I'm an Israelite. You can say church. So no matter how I live or what I choose to do, I'm safe. Jeremiah goes on, Jeremiah goes on to proclaim that this assurance of your safety with God is a delusion if you do not repent. He goes on. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this temple which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. Another word for we are saved. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jesus knows the context. What if that Lord, what if Yahweh, became one of us without ever putting aside of his person divinity but took to his person humanity and he walked into a temp this temple the new one built by Herod 600 years later we have it right here and Jesus is comparing the state of Israel and this temple right now with Solomon's temple 600 years earlier that was smashed to the ground in 586 B.C. Jesus comes to confront the nation and that means the people are now faced with a choice. It is According to Jeremiah and Jesus, a deceptive thing to think that association with God's temple, the church, is enough. If you don't know Him, you don't walk with Him, you don't repent as one who knows Him on a daily basis, trusting in His Word. And He says, it's a house of prayer. And you've perverted it. Read on, verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Luke here, he is setting up the tension and then the following traumatic series of events that will be happening. From the leader's standpoint, 
This tension that's happening in Jerusalem now is not going to go away until this Jesus problem is settled. Now just for a moment, back off. Man, we're Bible people. Think about this. Dr. Luke, all the stuff in the book of Acts has already happened. Paul has already ended up in Rome. Luke was a very close associate with Paul. For years he had been working as a historian on this, talking to all the principal people, his Jesus, his mother Mary, and on down the line, okay? And now he is writing his narrative 35 years after this event here to Gentiles. He's not indifferent. He knows what he's doing. He is implicitly saying even to all you Gentiles who hear this message, you're confronted with the choice of authority. And here it is. Not only to those 65, 66 AD, but to us this morning. Do these Jewish leaders that will confront Jesus here, are they God's true authority? Or does Jesus have the true authority? Who is Jesus? is Luke's blaring message. Go on. And one day, it, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, essentially that's the makeup of Sanhedrin, 70 kinds of people of these groups, said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who it is that gave you this authority. Okay? They have in mind what's just been happening in the last day and a half. This pomp is coming in riding like a king on a donkey with people praising you and entering the temple and turning over tables as if you're in control and chasing these legal vendors out and setting up shop in the temple and teaching and crowds are coming. Who do you think you are? Well, where do you get this authority? Which throughout his ministry was always something that bugged these people because Jesus taught differently. The, the, the culture, the way the rabbis in the first century would do it, is not like Jesus. You, you would constantly be appealing to other authorities. And Rabbi so-and-so said, and Rabbi so-and-so agrees with him, and Rabbi so-and-so adds this to it. That's their authoritative teaching. I, I think that's part of the problem, but the other part is clearly this. Where are your papers to come into the temple and have the right to set up shop publicly? Teach. See, they're hoping to confront Jesus publicly. To have Jesus say, I don't have the proper ordination to be doing this. From the high priest, those who work in his administration, and they say, good, we can discredit him in front of all the people. But Jesus saw through the trap and put a brilliant counter-question to them publicly. He answered, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. For they're convinced that John was a prophet. They couldn't do anything. Just so you hear it clearly why. Luke has already said this to us in chapter 7. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors also, they declared God just having or because they have been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. That's what's going on. And so amidst, amidst all this, these people listening in, when Jesus puts the question to them, they know they are stuck. They can't tell them the truth. We don't believe in John. They're afraid to. And if we say, no, okay, he, he's from God, and get the people on their side, they're stuck. Then why didn't you get baptized by him? Why were you resisting him the whole time? Everybody knows this about you guys. But if they also admitted, they would be saying, okay, he's from God. Really? You mean John the Baptist? Who everyone knows? He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm just pointing to him. And everyone knows now it's Jesus. John the Baptist, you said, no, Jesus is on the scene. Now I must decrease so that he'll increase. They cannot admit John was a prophet. Defeats their entire purpose. Jesus is essentially saying, answer my question rightly and you will have the answer to your question about my authority. So they lied. We have no opinion. We don't know the answer. Oh, they had an opinion. They thought John was not a prophet from God. Okay. Now, the problem that the religious leaders faced is the same problem that every one of us or any person in the world faces when they come in contact with Jesus and His authority. To summarize that problem, it is essentially this. His authority confronts our authority. His authority confronts my authority to do and to feel and to express whatever desires I have within my humanity as freely and unhinderedly as I want. His authority constantly confronts our sin. 
just get it this way. A person hears a very irritating sermon that makes him feel really uncomfortable. Struggles with it. But 24 hours later though, he has successfully brushed it off and moved on with his own authoritative agenda. Then, he has another encounter with Jesus and his authority. A friend points out a passage in the Bible that steps on his toes and his level of uneasiness goes up. He realizes, boy, if I really submit to Jesus and He takes over my life, there will be radical changes in how I do things and how I live. And he's not sure. He wants to give up that control. So he rationalizes why Jesus' authority on that issue does not apply to him, not in this situation. Every true Christian in here, if, if you're a genuine Christian, you're in touch, you know this experience. And you've come to repentance again and again in it. But many people don't ever come to repentance, but continue to rationalize. Sooner or later, every one of us comes to crisis points in our lives, and often many of them where we have to deal with the question of the text, by what authority, Jesus, do you or the Scripture say these things? By what authority do you command me? The question that the Jewish leaders pose to him is a good question with a wrong motive for them. It's a foundational question. Tell us, Jesus, by what authority do you do and say these things? So take the question, but just don't be like these leaders because they assumed that they were right. And therefore, anyone who challenges their authority to do and to be and to live and to lead the way that they think that they ought are by definition wrong. By nature, every one of us are bent the way of these Jewish leaders. Sin nature. By nature, we automatically knee-jerk reaction, want to justify our authority over doing our lives the way we want to do it, as opposed to Jesus' authority. Who in the world do you think you are, Jesus? Tell me how to live my personal life. Who are you to come in to the temple of my life and turn over the tables of sin? Who are you to say stuff like this through your Apostle Paul? The works of the flesh are evident. 
sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's flesh. Our flesh, our sin nature screams, I'm free! I, I have authority to do what I feel like doing. And Jesus' authority constantly confronts our flesh. God's authority in Jesus on that day confronted the Sanhedrin's authority. If they were genuinely seeking the one true God, they would have submitted to John's baptism of repentance. And they didn't. And as we see, Jesus appealed to the Scripture. And no problem. Whatever this authority is in Jesus, and we see at the end of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth and earth. Do not think somehow that is separate from the Hebrew Scripture and the Greek New Testament. There are many professing Christians in our day who want to go to church. And they want to go to church where they can feel safe enough to say, I want to hear sermons that make me feel good about myself, no matter what. But when the Apostle Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy about the inspiration of Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, when he said this, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So this is the high view of Scripture. Now he's writing to Pastor Timothy. And then he goes on right after that an extremely strong language to Timothy about preach the word in light of this reality. Here's the reality Paul says. Quote, two verses later. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But instead, have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Okay. In the light of that, Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to 
we prove. When people are wrong, you tell them to exhort, to rebuke with complete patience in teaching. Preaching that never reproves or rebukes or corrects or exhorts people regarding their sin is not biblical preaching. Preaching that aims at making people feel good about themselves no matter what state of life they're in that week is not pleasing to God. If the Lord Jesus has never entered the temple of your life and turned over the tables of sin in order to rule your affections by showing you the great news of the gospel and of his life and of all the eternal joy in the Father that He has will be yours. Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened and hate you sin. I will give you rest and promise you an eternal resurrection free of charge. If He's never come into your temple and done that, then you have not met Him yet. But he still pleads, Come. Come to me. I'm, I'm humble, lowly of heart. Anybody who says, I hear the offer that you died, you suffered the wrath of God against my sin for me so that it would be put away forever, so that I could come into the presence of God and receive paid-for mercy now and in the future, the inheritance of the resurrection. This is the authority of the great King to give eternal life to anybody who will take it, who will receive it, Say, come into my temple. I receive you as my Savior from what I deserved. There is a model in this text. And the model is the religious leaders. These men would not deal honestly with the truth of Jesus' question. They avoided it when confronted with authority, they voted absent. Don't ever be them. J.C. Ryle, in the 1800s, writes, the ruin of thousands is simply this, that they deal dishonestly with their own souls. They allege pretended difficulties as the cause of their not obeying Christ, while in reality they love darkness rather than light, and they have no honest desire to change. Don't be that. 
To be a Christian is to be this person who, by the Holy Spirit, he's brought the new life, and I've tasted and I've seen it. He is good, and yet he does leave you with sin. And every day is a battle, and you know what sin is very personally, but you're walking in a different direction than before. And when you sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive you, but you're not living in sinful, unrepentant patterns. You're moving desperately toward him. This is the sanctification of all believers. And as you're walking that way, believer, oh, trust that he will never lose you. If you're true, you'll never be lost. He grabbed you, and He will bring you home safely to the end. And one of the evidences that you're true is because you hear the warnings of Scripture by the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit who indwells you. So, let's take His authority constantly, dear believer, and like the Apostle Paul proclaim every day, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ. His rulership, His authority, His love, His affection, His salvation, the Spirit whom He's given me lives within me in the life I now live. I live by trusting Him daily. By faith in Him who loved me and gave Himself up for me. What a gospel. Come, search. The gospel. I, Jesus, am the true treasure. I am the life. Submit to Jesus' authority and find for yourself an eternal treasure of joy. To the glory of His name and to the true and everlasting satisfaction of your life. Oh, Father, I beg that you continue in your people to shine the light on these words and all the contours of the different contours of the gospel that we see how beautiful they are in the midst of this coming week where sin is ever present in us. But you, by your Spirit, are present in us. Oh, would you cause us in our daily wrestling against sin and wrestle to trust your word to only be drawn to you and to not allow our sin and our own self-proclaimed authority to push us away from you so that we would be more and more a beacon of light overflowing and helping and loving others with the gospel and with our deeds to the glory of your name. Amen.